So tonight, uh, I don't want to take too much time. Uh, we're going to, really what I'm doing tonight is I'm closing out our series, the January series. You might not remember. Uh, I feel like everything pre-Jason Lee Jones was kind of a blur. Um, but if you do remember, you will know that we are, we've been talking about the pin, the plan, and the promised land, uh, which has really been, the objective of it has been to set our attention towards accomplishing everything God wants us to accomplish in 2020. Um, we're very aware of the fact that unless we set out with a very specific plan, that oftentimes we continue to repeat the same thing that we've repeated in our past. And if we want God to do something amazing in our lives, there's a, an objective, there's a course that we have to set out on in order to see that thing to accomplish, right? The same way that you would look at it in any area of life, really. If you wanted to get in shape or you wanted to do anything like that, the best thing to do is to get a plan and just continue to set it on that plan. And so that's what we've been talking about this month with the, the pin starting it out, which was really the understanding of where we are right now, who we are and where we are. I think that sometimes the, the beginning spot, just like if we were to use a GPS, the beginning of the journey starts, how many of you know that annoying moment when it's trying to find your current location, right? Sometimes you have it where your current location is somewhere where it's not, and how many of you know if it can't find where you are, it can't help you get to where you're trying to get to. And so we've been talking about, to start this off, an understanding of where are we in our life? Where are we? Who are we? What are our um, strengths? What are our weaknesses? And understanding how to use all those things to then step two, which was make a plan, which the majority of us, I would say, understand conceptually the way we make a plan, but it's not just something that we do naturally. There are spiritual principles. How many of you know in the Bible, many times it talks about making a plan. It talks about getting a vision. It talks about writing it down. It talks about putting something before your eyes that's tangible that will help you, whether it's spirit, soul, body, relationally, financially, whatever it is, putting a plan together that will help you get to where you want to go. And then the promised land, uh, I don't really think we have to talk much about it. I think it's fairly self-explanatory what we're talking about. Uh, but really, it's that place of understanding that God has a place for us, and God has a promise for us. And tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit from, um, I, I like to think of it a practical application of understanding what is the promised land, and what does it look like to get there? Um, because I think that sometimes, because it's such a widely used term, that it can sometimes feel a little bit intangible of how to get there. Or in other people's lives, maybe it feels as though it's so absolute or so easy to get there because we talk about it so much. Um, but I think that one of the, 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 the biggest, I would say, tragedies that people face in Christianity is that we would know about the promises of God— that we would get the words, that we would read the scriptures, that we would listen to the teachings, that we would know what God has for us, but that we would never actually experience those things in our life. How many of you know the promises of God aren't just something that we say on a Sunday morning that make us feel good? There are things in, in our life, in our future, that God would set before us that we could actually, like we talked about last summer, live a life that we actually enjoy. And for the sake of this, this, this evening, I'm going to talk about the Apostle Peter. Uh, I feel like the Apostle Peter is the, one of the greatest guys to teach about because he really has a very wide gamut of things that he experienced in his life. He had his ups and downs. He had his good and his bad. He had his shining moments, and he had moments of utter demise. Uh, and so he's really a great guy to teach about. And 
to give you a little bit of context, uh, what's happening in Peter's life, because the passage of scripture we're going to read is at the end of the book of John, which is really kind of this moment when Jesus is transitioning from his earthly ministry to go be with the Father. And a little bit of context of who Peter was is Peter was a fisherman. Those of you who know the story, when we meet him at the beginning of the Gospels, uh, we know that Peter is out just some guy on a boat somewhere. The scripture says that he'd been fishing all night long and that he'd caught nothing. And his first interaction with Jesus, for those of you that will recall the story, was the fish all night and Jesus tells him, you know, he'd cleaned up all of his nets and folded everything and put it away. And Jesus told him, go out and cast your nets. And, and Peter argued, you know, which sometimes we like to do with Jesus, is we have a plan and Jesus has a plan and we like to argue with his plan. And so we, he argues with Jesus for a bit, but as a good guy, the scripture says he goes out and he casts his net, and the scripture says that not only does he catch a few fish, but he catches so many fish that his, as he begins to pull them in, uh, his boat begins to sink, and he has to call to his other fishing buddies, and they come and they share in the spoils. And I want to focus on this for just one moment, because it says, it goes on, that as Peter gets back into this interaction with Jesus, it says that he makes this statement, which is really talking about and expressing really Peter's inward reality of that he feels so unworthy. In fact, he even makes that statement to Jesus that, you know, I'm so unworthy to be here, that you're so great and I'm so small. And, and I would submit to you that a lot of what Peter does throughout his ministry isn't actually for Jesus, but a lot of what he, do, what he does in his ministry is to validate this level of unworthiness that he feels on the inside of him. That the promise in Peter's life, the accomplishments that he experiences, is really about creating a place of validation on the inside of him, at least at first. And when that's the case, and we try to use the, the promises of God, the plan of God, in order to validate something that's on the inside of us, that really that the ability to accomplish that thing rests heavily on our shoulders. And as we, what we talk about to the, just for a few minutes this evening is, is we're gonna, we've talked about the pin, we've talked about the plan, and now we're going to talk about what does it take to not just get the promise, but to sustain that place of promise. Later on, we're going to talk a little bit about the Israelites and how God led them into the promised land the initial time, but that although they stepped foot into the promised land, they didn't actually stay there. How many of you know that it was really just, I think, a two or three week journey for them if they would have walked straight from Egypt to the promised land, they didn't have to do the 40 years of wandering. I don't know about you, but I'd like my promise to come in three weeks, not 40 years. I'd like to get there the first time and stay there, not get there, fall out of it, wander for a bit, hopefully make it, right? And that's what it's all about. So back to Peter. When Jesus calls Peter... He gives him a promise. How many of you know he brings in the catch and they have this exchange and P Jesus says to Peter, you know, follow me, stop fishing for fish and follow me and I will make you fisher of men. And a lot happens in Peter's life, which we'll talk about as we kind of walk through this teaching, but it all culminates in this moment that John writes about where Jesus is challenging Peter because of a situation and in John chapter 21, 21, verse 15, it says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And this is kind of the annoying part about this passage of scripture, you know? Because you think that Peter's saying, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus is like, oh, that's so great. But then in verse 16, it says this. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord. You know, are you deaf, Jesus? Is something stuck in your ear? You know I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Verse 17 says, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The scripture says that Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Heavenly Father, we ask tonight that as we spend time, just a few moments in your word, we're asking that you would speak to us, that you would cause your words to become illuminated to us, that we would understand, Lord, not just the words that are on the page, but that we would understand the context and the application of how it can come into our life and transform us so that our future can be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to talk about, for a few minutes, talk about the promised land. Now, how many of you have received a promise from God? Right? How many of you? Majority of you? Yes. Some of you just don't feel like raising your hands. That's cool, too. How many of you stepped right into that promise the moment after you received the promise from God? Anybody? <laughs> Anybody at all? <laughs> Going once, <laughs> twice. Okay. And now this is, this is fairly, you know, accurate. I can remember getting words from God really my whole life. Started going to church when I was about, I think, three or four years old. Uh, and in the type of church that I was in, it was very common for people to give words and you'd receive words and you'd go out for prayer. And, and I learned over time, really, the, the best way to determine the accuracy of the word that you received was how quickly your life looked the complete opposite of the word that was given to you. Okay. Now, I told you this story earlier uh, this month when I, I think it was the first week that I talked. Uh, when I was at Honor Academy, you know, I went there. My life was an absolute mess. And I went to Honor Academy and I got there because I knew that God was calling me to do something for him. And I knew that I needed a change of scenery in order to make that happen. And so I left my life, picked up, went and moved to Garden Valley, Texas. If you've never heard of it, that's okay. Nobody has. It was a population of like eight, except for the 500 of us who lived in this internship bubble. Uh, and I can remember going there, and I had this one experience, one of very many experiences, but this one was probably one of the most meaningful to me. It was in a meeting that I had with John Bevere. We would get these world-renowned speakers who would come and speak to us, and it was a, a great honor. Uh, and I can remember he was giving his message, and it was really great. And really in the middle of the message, he stops abruptly and says, you know, the Spirit of the Lord just told me that he's going to bring waves in, and we're going to get washed and flooded over, you know, with the presence of God. And me, being someone who's been in my church my whole life, said, yeah, right. Uh, and so he gets it, he stands up, and he says, here we go, the first wave is coming in three, two, one. And all I can remember is standing there, and as he said one, I could just feel the presence of the Lord rush over me. He went on to proceed to do this three or four times as really it was like aisle after aisle, row after row, people were being touched. And, and in that moment, obviously just being caught in this moment that I was in, I, just, I had my hands raised and I had my eyes closed, and God showed me this amazing vision 
probably one of the clearest visions I've ever seen from God. And it was, I was standing, it was like I was seeing a bird's eye view of myself looking down, preaching, of, uh, you know, uh, on this giant stage. And the amount of people that I was preaching to, they went up so high that you couldn't even see the end of them. Amazing vision. And I got to tell you, I came home early from my internship experience because I was ready to fulfill the promise that God had given to me. I can remember standing up on my first, I think at that point we were doing youth group on Friday night, and you know, I'm standing up and I'm sucking myself up vision, the promise that Almighty God had spoken to me. And I stood up there and I introduced my topic, and my mind goes completely blank. My head falls in shame as my mom quickly comes up and rescues me in front of all these people. Now, I'd ask how many of you have had a similar experience to this, but the majority of us, anybody who's followed God for more than three weeks and received more than one promise from God will know that this really can become the, the norm in the way that we experience the promises of God. That someone tells you that they see prosperity in your future, and two weeks later, you get fired from your job. Someone sees your husband. This is the year. I hear the girls, they're talking about the camels are coming. I don't know what that means. I don't know if I should be offended if you're calling me a camel. But they see the camels coming. And you have the most lonely year of your life. That someone calls out your gifting and it goes completely unnoticed. Now, if you've experienced this, you're not alone. I think this is the beautiful thing about this is that the, the condition of our humanity is so clearly laid out for us in Scripture that I've actually, through this and really through studying this process of going from pin to plan to promised land, I really have concluded that most of the time it's out of, out of a season of pain that God uses that to establish our promise. Because here's the reality of how God works. God is in the business of the turnaround, right? The Bible tells us all the time that God's objective in our life is to turn problems into promise, right? It's to turn disappointment into destiny. The scripture tells us very clearly that God uses all things the enemy meant for harm and he will turn those things around for our good. That God is in the business of using our persecution, our pain, our problems. And through the process of life, using those things to build our promise. You ever felt yourself being thankful for something that goes wrong in your life? Right? You ever find yourself being thankful that you went through a hard time? Maybe it was a relationship that absolutely crushed you, that devastated you when it ended. You know, you thought that you were going to marry this person, and just up out of the blue, he breaks your heart. And you're so broken and so distraught. But that is until you meet Mr. Right. And you realize that that guy was Mr. Right now, and you're thankful at the fact that he broke your heart. Right? We're all familiar with this feeling of what it feels like to be thankful because of where we are that we went through the season of difficulty of what we experienced at that moment. That's simply what God is talking to us about 
about him turning things around, what the enemy meant for harm, he turns that thing around for our good. Now, this is the truth. It's great when you are past the pain. When you're married to Mr. Right, and you have your 2.3 children, and you're behind the white picket fence, man, you're so thankful that Mr. Right now broke your heart. It's easy to be thankful when we're living in the promise. But it's hard to rejoice in the middle of the rejection. And I believe that it's this moment in our life, the moment of pain, the moment of rejection, the moment of disappointment, that either will sanctify us for the journey or separate us from the promise. I believe that it's this moment, this moment of pain, this moment of difficulty, the situations when they don't go the way we think they're supposed to go, this is the moment that causes most promises in our life to go unfulfilled. Now I need to make a detour here because I need to make sure we understand something that's very important. This is not because God is not faithful. But because we start to focus on the promise, instead of focusing on the God who promised the promise. When my eyes are on the promise, it's so easy for me to be moved by how things feel. It's so easy for me to be moved by how the situation seems, by what's happening in my life by whether I feel as though what's happening is taking me closer to or farther away from my promise. And oftentimes, most people let go of the promises that God has given to them simply because they see their life going in a direction that's away from the promise that God has for them. When I'm focused on the God who gave the promise... It doesn't matter what desert. It doesn't matter what wall. It doesn't matter what giant. It doesn't matter what lion's den is in my way. It doesn't matter how much my life looks like it's going in the direction of the promise. When I'm focused on the God who gave the promise, it's easy for me to walk through seasons of difficulty because it was never about what I was experiencing. But often the place of promise is birthed out of our pain. I got asked a question a few weeks ago, and I was having a conversation, talking with someone really about the state of Christianity, the culture that we're in versus the culture of where we were. And someone asked me this question. They asked me, how do I think that biblical texts apply to modern society? And I answered this question, you know, kind of off the cuff, but then, like I normally do, I actually step back and I really think about the question. And I've realized something that we can do when, you know, we're, we're, we're in our life and in our Christianity and walking with the Lord is, I think oftentimes we can miss the message in the metaphor. Because the Bible really is a metaphor to us. That when we read the stories of Scripture, they didn't happen to us. They happen to somebody else. And so really, when we're reading the scriptures, 
just the same way that Jesus was giving a parable to the people, the Bible to me is a parable, right? Because I'm not David, I'm not John, I'm not King Josiah. And so when I read their stories, sometimes what can happen is, is I can get so caught up in the story that I miss the message, that I miss the meaning of what Jesus is actually talking about, the secrets or the keys that he's trying to use in order to get me to the promise that he's given to me. So my job is, is that when I'm trying to get to my place of promise and I'm searching the scriptures for the truths of how to get there, my job is to, I gotta unpack it, I gotta extract the gold, and I have to know how to apply it to my life. Because while it's amazing that we could memorize scripture, and I think it's great. I can remember my dad growing up, before my dad would let us go to sleep at night, we would have to recite probably 15 minutes of memorized scripture. And I think that that's so amazing. But I got to tell you something. I sinned real good. And then I would go home and recite my memorized scripture. Because there's something different than knowing something in my head and actually understanding it to the place that when I'm in my moment of difficulty, I'm able to extract the gold and use the concepts of scripture to get me from where I am to where I'm trying to get to. This is what Galatians tells me. Galatians 6, 9 tells me that we will reap the harvest. We will reap the promised land if we simply won't abandon the journey. So the passage that we started to read this morning is really so significant. Only when we understand what happened earlier in Peter's story. Jesus is saying, if, if you're unfamiliar with it, Jesus has this moment with Peter where he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And that's because at, uh, maybe a few days late earlier, we all know that Jesus has this amazing moment. He has having the Passover supper with his disciples. And out of that, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane because we understand this is the, the beginning of the kind of the passion of the Christ sequence that's about to happen. And at dinner time, Jesus, you know, tells them that, you know, I'm going to be slain and you're all going to, you know, peace out on me. And Peter's like, no, Jesus, I would never, right? I'll never deny you. And the worst news ever, Jesus says, hey, Pete, before the end of the night, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times, right? And so Peter goes through the whole thing, and all this stuff happens, and he ends up denying Jesus. And later on, it goes to give an account of the story, and it says that essentially from that point on, Peter just goes back and goes fishing. One of the translations, or, or, or one of the, the gospel accounts, says that when Jesus is calling to his disciples, he says, go get my disciples and Peter. And I, I've taught about this before, and I believe that why Jesus said, go get my disciples and Peter, is that whenever that person was that was going to get them, Peter would have disqualified himself and thought that while Jesus was calling the disciples, surely he could not mean Peter. That as if his, the denial somehow changed his destiny. And so when we look at Peter's initial story, 
up until that point, if you're familiar with it, you'll know that Peter was really the star disciple. Right? I mean, everything that could go right for Peter really was going right. I mean, of the 12 disciples, Peter by far gets the most airtime scripturally. Now, mind you, he has a few flubs. You know, there's some sinking, there's some rebuking. It's not all good for Peter, but really for the vast majority, Peter gets some pretty darn good airtime with Jesus. But this is what I noticed about Peter, going back to my initial statement about Peter, and that he was so desperately trying to validate the unworthiness or the insecurity in him, is that you'll notice about Peter in the initial part of his ministry with Jesus, it's really the promise was all about Peter. But it was always, Jesus, use me. Jesus, call me. Jesus, ask me. Jesus, send me. It was really me, 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 me. Here's the deal. When our eyes are on ourselves, we are an easy target for the enemy. When we somehow feel as though God gives us a promise and we start to put all the chess pieces on the chessboard to try to figure out what's the best way that I'm going to get to my promise, I tell you something, there is absolutely nothing we can do in our own strength to accomplish the plan and purpose that God has for us. That God is the one who gives the promise and God is the one who will fulfill the promise in our life. So Jesus meets Peter when he's out fishing. In this passage of scripture in John chapter 21, before this moment when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And the initial point of this story is that Peter is back out fishing. And we kind of have this repeat, this rewind of the story in that Peter is out fishing with the guys and he fished all night and he's caught no fish. It's a bit of a deja vu, if you ask me. And it's a big deal because Peter, at this point in his ministry, feels as though he's blown it. He feels as though there was this great plan for his life, but it's kind of taken these detours. We've hit all these diversions. We've kind of stumbled and hit the roadblocks, and I'm just going to kind of go back to what I'm used to doing, things that I know I can do in my own strength to make my life significant. And Jesus says in this moment, go tell my disciples and Peter. And we find ourselves in this moment where Jesus is about to have this interaction with Peter. Because Peter has just gone back to what he knows how to do. He's gone back to, he's lived these last three years in this spiritual reality of the limitless abilities of God. That he's got the words and he's seen the visions. And I mean, when we think about it, Jesus has this interaction with Peter, you know, when he's asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they go, you know, some say you're this and some say you're that. And Peter pipes up in this moment, in one of his shining moments. At least it's shining for a few seconds. And he says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him, no man has told you this, but the Spirit of God spoke to you. You know, this is the first time in 300 years since the prophet Malachi that we see that God has visibly spoken to someone. 
So Peter understands the spiritual realm. He understands what it looks like to live this life with God. He understands what it looks like to live in this limitless reality. But because of the stumbles, because of the difficulty, the upset, he goes back to what he knows. He tried to fish for men, but he failed. And so now he's just back fishing for fish that he could maybe sell to men. The promise, as far as Peter is concerned, is gone. And Jesus meets him in this amazing moment because, like earlier, I mean, Peter's got to be a pretty not great fisherman if the two times we see him fishing, he catches nothing, right? I don't know what that says about Peter, but maybe he should have picked a different profession. And so we see Jesus at the beginning of John chapter 21, and he sees the men, and they're out on the boat, so they had caught nothing. And I love this because God essentially is going to, in this very moment, hit the reset button in Peter's life. And I don't know who I would be talking to this evening, but I trust that there's at least one of us in this room that feels as though we've known the promise, we've tried to pick it up in our own strength, we failed, and we need God to hit a reset button for us right now. And this is what God does that I think is so amazing is that Jesus essentially does the exact same miracle as he did before. That three years ago, they were out fishing and they caught nothing. And just like three years ago, Jesus tells them, cast your net on the other side. And what happens? To no one's surprise, really, they pull in another net-breaking catch. And I think that what this is, is that Jesus is telling Peter that he's setting up for us this prophetic picture that says, Peter, I know you feel like you've messed up too bad. I know you feel like you've disqualified yourself. But as you pull these fish in, let it be a representation that, Peter, I'm choosing you all over again. That there's nothing you can do, Peter, that would cause me to turn my back on you. That I chose you even when I knew you would deny me. Because you see, what he's saying to Peter is, Peter, I am not fickle, I'm faithful. And this is what I believe the Lord wanted me to talk about tonight is, is that no matter what people say, no matter how things have gone, no matter whether, whether it seems as though you're getting close to your promise or not, that we did not choose God but God chose us. That Peter's destiny was birthed out of his denial. And we see this, that Jesus commissions him with the purpose of his life. He tells him in this moment, Peter, do you love me? Yes, then go feed my sheep. That the purpose and destiny of Peter's life was birthed out of the very denial that he thought would disqualify him. And from this point on, as we see Peter and as we read about Peter, Peter no longer is talking about himself. He's no longer concerned with himself. He's no longer concerned with whether he can do it or he can't do it. What he's concerned with sharing the good news of the gospel with the people that God has sent him to. I believe this is the question that each of us must answer. Do we trust in the promise or do we trust in the God who gave us the promise? You know, when my dad and I were talking about this series title, 
he made us aware of a grammatical error in the naming of the title. Because in our maybe lack of English ability, we would say that it's the pin, the plan, and the promise land. That it is the land of promise. And my dad said, that's actually not correct. It would be the pin, the plan, and the promised land. Because it's not about the destination. It's not about whether or not our life looks like it's on track to get to the place we think that it's supposed to get to. What makes it the land of promise is that God was the one who promised that we would get to the place of promise when he gets us there. You see, my faith isn't in a destination. My faith isn't that my life even looks the way I think it's supposed to look. My faith is that the God who gave me the promise is going to stay with me and work with me until I get to that place of promise. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know what it's going to look like. But one thing I do know is that if I stick with God, I'm going to get there. You see, there are two roads that each of us face in this moment. There's two paths that we take when things don't go the way we think they're supposed to go. We have this moment, this decision, when we're standing in our disappointment, we're standing in our discouragement, our depression, we're standing in this moment where we, 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 the emotion is there that feels like oh, the promise is just absolutely out of sight. Now, if we trust the promise, this is what the Israelites did. They trusted in the promise. You know, they had the most amazing story. You know, let my people go. No, send the plague. Let my people go. No, send the plague. Right? We know they lived through the plagues. That all these horrible things would happen to people like five minutes down the street. Where that would be like if there was like this crazy snowstorm and like you were like, listen, as long as you sit in the church parking lot, it doesn't ever snow in the parking lot of the church. This is what it was like. This is what Goshen was like. That although all around them were plagues, as long as they stayed in Goshen, nothing happened to them. They lived through this. They lived through finally the deliverance of their people. Millions of people on this grand exile out of hundreds of years of slavery. And not only did they leave, but the Israelites literally paid them to leave. Right? They're like, take all of our gold. We don't care. Just go. We're sick of dealing with all these frogs and locusts and all. Just get out of here. And then they come up to the Red Sea. And we know that Jesus, or, or God, as Moses, puts his staff in the water. God literally causes the water to congeal. Which means that like, it basically became jello. Right? This is a sea. This doesn't happen every day. Right? I know, at least it's never happened to me. Is the sea, the water, literally becomes like jello on the side. And they walk through on dry ground. Then they take their, they go and they worship and they take their two-week journey and they get to a place of promise. The place that God had promised them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that they will now inhabit and live in. We know the story, they send 10 spies, 12 spies in. 
they're like, it's, guys, it's so great there. Oh my gosh, you've never seen grapes so big. I mean, we literally, two guys carried bushels. Like, it was the land of milk and honeys. Like, <laughs> there's enough ladies there for anybody. Like, that didn't actually happen. At least, not that we know of. We know the spies go in, and what happens? They were focused on the promise. They were focused on themselves. They were focused on the natural ability to accomplish the promise. And what do they say? The land is great. It's everything God promised. But there's giants in the land. And we were like grasshoppers in their sight. Their eyes were on the place. Their eyes was on the land. In contrast, we look at what it looks like to not focus on the promise, but to focus on the God who gives the promise. We look at it in the life of David, where David doesn't run from the impossible, but we know in the life David runs to the impossible. And really, David's story was the complete opposite, right? The Israelites had the locust and the fire and the blood and the gold and the fire by night, and the cloud by day, and they had the congealed sea. That was not David's story. How many of you are familiar with David's story? David's story was when the, the prophet comes in and says, bring all of your sons. David's the guy who got forgot, right? Then all the people go off to battle, and they force David to stay home because they essentially have just written this guy off. Like, all you're good for, David, is go out into the field and play your weird harp thing, you weirdo, and just make sure we don't lose any of our sheep. We know that all this stuff is happening with Goliath. And, and he gets into the battle camp, and his brothers come to him and say, what on earth are you doing here? And then he goes to the king, and the king says, what on earth are you doing here? And then he gets in front of all the people, and all the people are like, what on earth are you doing here? But how many of you know David wasn't moved? He wasn't moved by how impossible things seemed. He wasn't moved by how things looked, the emotions that he felt. What does the scripture say? I love what it says. It doesn't say that David walked into battle. It says that David ran into the battlefield. Why? Because it naturally was possible that this shepherd guy who was more familiar with a harp than a sword, could beat this trained 10-foot tall. It's not natural. But what David understood was, if I keep my eyes on the, the God who gave the promise, then I'm not moved by, I'm not moved by what you think. I'm not moved by what you say. I'm not moved by how it looks. I'm not moved by how it feels. What does this mean in our life? It means that every step that we take, God is faithful. It means every move that we make, God is faithful. It means everywhere that we go, God is faithful. It means that when we feel him, he's faithful. It means when we don't feel him, he's faithful. It means that when things are good, he's faithful. It means that when things are bad, he's faithful. Every season of my life, he's faithful. Wherever I go, he's faithful. Whoever I'm with, He's faithful. Whether it's possible or not, he's faithful. Every season of my life, God is faithful. He's not fickle. He's faithful. I'm going to close with this. Joshua chapter 23.
Joshua is giving his final remarks before he dies. After all he's seen, after all he's experienced, after a lifetime of battles, he's preparing the next generation to continue to move forward in the same magnitude that he's walked. This is what he says in the end of his chapter, verse 14. He says, now I'm about to go the way of the earth. He's saying, my time is done. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the promises the Lord your God gave has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled and not one has failed. Heavenly Father, this evening, as we close out this series, this is our desire. That we would not be moved by how things feel. We would not be moved by the situations or the circumstances in our life. But Lord, that each of us right now, with that promise in mind, that impossible situation, that thing that people had told us can't be done, maybe that old dream that we had that just seems as though year after year goes by and yet nothing happened. Lord, like Joshua said, every promise has been fulfilled and not one has failed. God, you are the faithful one. We know that when we keep our eyes on you, God, that you've said that every, every move we make, every step that we take, every breath that we breathe is in you. You said you'd never leave us or forsake us. And because of that, Father, as we keep our attention on you, we know, we know that we know that we know that you will fulfill everything that you have promised us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray your life was impacted by the service and that you were able to feel the tangible love of Jesus fill whatever space you're listening from. Maybe you found this message and you've never had the opportunity to come into a personal relationship with Jesus or you've known about him but have been far from him. We want to give you the opportunity to make his love a daily reality in your life. Jesus came to this earth and died on a cross so that you and I could be close to him. He wanted to wipe away every disappointment and bring you into a life of purpose and meaning, one that will impact this globe for good. So if you'd like to begin this journey with Jesus today, then repeat this simple prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I'm praying this prayer because I know that I've made mistakes and have been living without you. I apologize and I trust that you will forgive me. I accept your love and grace and ask that you would be my Lord and Savior. Help me believe in you and love you every day. Help me to show the world what you're like and how great your love is. I commit to live for you from this moment forward. In Jesus' name, amen. All of our Light City family are joining with heaven and celebrating over the commitment you just made to have Jesus as the Lord of your life. We have resources available for you to help you on this journey, but most of all, we're praying for you. Send us a note at info at golightcity.com to let us know about the decision you've made today. We have resources we'd love to send you uh, with some easy steps on how to go from here so that you can discover God in a real and meaningful way. If you have a prayer request, our team would love to connect with you and partner with you to see God transform your life. God bless you, and we look forward to hearing from you soon.